So, Mark. Yes. For the first time in like four and a half years, we are attempting to cover two movies in one episode. Has it really been that long? It was like spring 2019. We did No Strings Attached and Friends with Benefits. And then we haven't done it since. Well, I mean, there was probably a reason we'll remind ourselves of today why we didn't. What, like a novel coronavirus? We had more time. I just meant that it was a lot of content in one episode and maybe a bit ambitious. Yeah. I still think, you know what? Even preparing for this one, I was like, I don't want to do this tomorrow, but I could do it more often. Yeah. I mean, it was a great chance to watch two movies. I still think we should have done 27 Dresses and Knocked Up as the same episode. You know what? I don't remember you floating that idea. Maybe you did and I shot it down, but I think it's a good one. Yep, but uh, maybe we'll pair it with another high goal. We'll do, like, the ugly truth. But then we would have to watch it. Ugh, I really don't want to watch that one. But anyway, in thinking about this episode, I was trying to come up with an opening question that united the spirits of both movies that we're talking about today. So here's what I've got for you. I want you to imagine that you're going to be trapped long-term in a basement. Okay. I like prefer Henry not. Like Henry II plans for his children. Yeah. And in that basement is a full-size mall. Oh my god. Yes. <laughs> what three amenities do you want to be in that mall for you? Like, amenities or stores? Like, mall? Either. Okay. It just has to be plausible for a mall. I mean, you gotta have a food court with the... The classics you only see in a mall, such as Charlie's sandwiches or like Charlie's cheesesteaks, whatever it's called, some um, Panda Express. Sbarro. Sbarro, yeah. And next to that has to be the carousel. Okay. um, For the true suburban mall experience. Is it going to be a themed carousel at all? What's on it? I'm torn between like the most classic carousel to capture the spirit of the malls I grew up in. Or something more fun, like rocket ships, or maybe Ooh. just wine casks to capture the spirit of the lion in winter. I um, like that. The other idea I just had remembered instead of a carousel could be, you know, those like trampoline with bungee cord things where you like go super high in the air that they had at some Yes, malls. but I've never seen one in a mall. What mall besides Mall of America had one of those? I think it was in Mall of Georgia. Okay. Now that you mention it. In like Tbilisi? No. (laughs) Um, Where is it? I believe it is in Commerce, Georgia, if I remember correctly. That is hilarious. It's drivable from Atlanta. It's It's like going to Tyson's. Yeah. Going to King of Prussia. It's a day trip mall. Okay. Uh, Catherine, what about you? What would be, what would be in your oh, and then hot topic? I forgot to mention hot topic. <laughs> oh, of course. I mean, I definitely agree about the food court, the Charlies. I don't. I want to not even say the like a Panda Express. I want it to be some like mom and pop general Asian restaurant that doesn't have a like, isn't really a chain, but. There's one, those in in every fo- there's one in every food court. Not that I've seen. In every mall I grew up in, there was. There right. wasn't. They weren't a specific chain, but there was some generic Asian restaurant, Asian buffet. And then we also had 
like the ice cream stand in the middle of the food court in the mall I grew up with. And that was always really entertaining. I feel like a mall is not complete without a Claire's accessories. <laughs> like, yeah, truly. also true. You want like a proper storefront, not one of those like Claire's carts. That oh, exist. yeah. The carts are stupid. We need a storefront. You need to be able to walk in and have a 16 year old pierce your ears like has to happen. And then like, I just I love a good department store. So I mean, a department store is key because presumably that's where you'll sleep. Right. So like, I really want the Dillard's that existed at West Shore Plaza in like 2002 when it was the only Dillard's left in Tampa. (laughs) See, I like the idea of like trying to recreate aspects of a specific mall at a specific point in time, because like, for example, if I'm going to be trapped in a basement mall, I would love there to be a Walden books. Oh, fair. A current day Lake Forest mall vibe. (laughs) Haunted. (laughs) Right. Well, I believe they have torn it down now. Is it a fi- Oh, I be- I think you're right. I think it is officially gone. Oh. Lake Forest Mall is now a ruin. So sad. Remember when the four-year entertainment, I believe the only remaining one in America, was going out of business in like 2019? We bought so no, many the things. Ma- <laughs> the Wheaton Mall one outlasted it, and that's the one that I like tore through. Wow. I bought so many things at that FYE at Lake Forest Mall. But yeah, so, okay, so I want a Walden Books. When I was growing up, Lake Forest Mall had a silver diner, so that's just going to be where I eat. Fair. I'm just going to eat silver diner and read at Walden Books, and then, yeah, we're going to lean into the Lake Forest Mall thing. It'll have the weird, like, pleather playground with, like, a big frog thing that, in retrospect, you're like, this is, like, a living staph infection, but... It sure was fun to play on as a child, and it's where I can lounge around. I thought you were going to say the little midi train. That that came along later. Now, what I could do is, you could say one of the things you want is a mall Santa, so that you have someone to talk to. I'll pass. I'm I'm good. I don't know how I feel about mall Santas, in like, a personal sense. I actually did meet a mall Santa one time who was very nice and also a very surreal experience to just be talking to a man who looks like Santa. I'm sure it was a holly jolly time. We had the same mall Santa for like my entire childhood. There was like the one particular mall Santa and he was always the mall Santa. And so like every picture I have as a kid with Santa is with the same guy. Yeah, Catherine, that was Santa. You got the real Santa. If he was going to go anywhere, it's Florida. I hate you guys. The sunny city by the bay. Does anyone call Tampa that? Uh, we can Currently start it. Currently not so sunny. Currently hurricane prepped. <laughs> but yeah, that, no. He was a good Santa. Unfortunately, I don't think we can demand that our basement mall have Barbara Streisand herself, queen of the basement mall. She's such an icon. Like, I believe hers has a fully functioning McDonald's. She's so real for that. Imagine being so famous that you can't go to the mall and then actually being rich enough to afford a mall in your basement. Right. That would never occur to me as the solution. You I, just... I would sooner be doing the Molly Shannon on the other two thing where I just get into like elaborate old age makeup to go places. But 
even in old age makeup, you could tell it's her. <laughs> she just has such a level of wealth that none of us will ever be able to begin to comprehend. And she uses it for the silliest purposes. All right, um, folks, uh, we are covering two movies in this My episode, God. so we got to keep things moving. Uh, I have purchased a bell, and the podcast continues to make us lose money. I, I used a gift card on this. So My God. Good. Yeah, and I'll just be setting timers for how long we can spend on a thing. I figured we should be able to get through the opener in 10 minutes. 10 minutes has passed, so the bell is rung. Mark, we got to move on. All right, welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark, and I'm gay. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. This is an investigative podcast dedicated to examining the very least important issue facing our world. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. We will dig in and see what's there. And this week, Catherine is back. Woo! And you are not listening on 1.25 speed. Catherine is here to help us do something we talked about back over the summer when we said we should cover... The two movies involved in the only ever tie at the Oscars for an acting category. Funny Girl with Barbara Streisand winning Best Actress and The Lion in Winter with Katherine Hepburn doing the same. There they are, the best actresses of 1968. Katherine Hepburn in The Lion in Winter, Patricia Neal for the subject was Roses, Vanessa Redgrave for Isadora, Barbara Streisand, Funny Girl, Joanne Woodward for Rachel, Rachel. The winner, it's a tie. The winners are Catherine Hepburn in Lion in the Winter and Barbara Streisand. Fun fact, named after Catherine Hepburn. Spelled differently, but that was the inspiration for my name. Interesting. I did not yeah. know that. Well, you were a perfect guest to bring on. And as everyone knows, I am named after Barbara Streisand. So it really works out. That's why I've been calling you Bark for years. <laughs> Mark, a classic nickname for Barbara. So I had not seen either of these movies before. I was vaguely aware of the premise of each. Had either of you seen either The Lion in Winter or Funny Girl? I had seen Funny Girl, and I have also now seen Funny Girl on Broadway starring Leah Michelle, but I had not seen The Lion in Winter. I had also seen Funny Girl many times. I had seen Funny Girl on Broadway starring Julie Banco because I went before Leah came back in. I had not seen Lion in Winter. So, okay. So you all are coming into this with a little bit more background than I am. Like, when did you first see Funny Girl? What were your general feelings about it? Are your feelings the same now? I don't know. Like, tell us your Funny Girl story. I watched it in lockdown in my just, like, watching random movies time. I think I fell asleep because also it was lockdown. Oh, well, I was going to say, I had to pause this movie and take a nap during it. It was not a commentary on the movie that I fell asleep, probably more a commentary on my um, irresponsible consumption of substances to process a very difficult experience. But I really liked it. Uh, Don't Rain on My Parade, perennial banger. Nikki Arnstein is terrible, but Omar Sharif is not terrible to look at. No, he's not. 
And I think it's just a good movie. Yeah, I saw Funny Girl when I was a teenager at some point in time. I don't know, as a musical theater dance person, the score has always been really, really familiar to me. And even after seeing it on Broadway as well, the score is the best part of Funny Girl. The book kind of sucks. The script kind of sucks. Barbara is great. Nick Arnstein is the worst. But again, Babs and Armo Sharif, nice to look at. I mean, if there was just like a Funny Girl movie without songs or Don't Rain on My Parade, it would be terrible. <laughs> right. It's You need the music has to be there. Otherwise, there's no point. <laughs> Otherwise, it's just a movie about a bunch of terrible people. Making terrible choices. And bizarrely, not even the terrible choices they made in real life. Yeah. Yeah. This movie it's has like, so little relation to the actual life of Fanny Bryce that, like, I don't, I can't even give it that. Like, my man is literally the closest connection to actual Fanny Bryce. A song that does not exist in the stage version. That That is weird. I didn't know that. That's like Fanny Bryce's iconic song. The stage version has more songs. Yes. Like, they cut a lot for this movie. I remember that Fanny Bryce's mom is a much bigger part in the musical, in the stage version, which was great because I saw it with Tova Feldshue as Mrs. Bryce. I saw Jane Lynch right before she left. She was great. Well, for what it's worth, like, Anne Francis complained a lot about the size of her role in the movie. She was like, every time, like, we shoot stuff, and then William Wyler and Barbara would go watch the dailies, and, like, the next day, my part in the movie would be smaller and smaller every time. She was convinced that Barbara was behind it, and that Barbara was just, like, cutting back her role for being too funny. Streisand insists that that's not the case, and the editor has backed her up on that. I could believe it either way. Does Barbara Streisand seem like someone who would cut the part of... A person who was outshining them? Yes. Do I think Barbara Streisand had that level of power in her first film appearance? Probably not. Well, that's the thing that's hard to nail down. Because... She's already Barbara Streisand and it's 1968. (laughs) I wouldn't totally go that far. I mean, like, she is young at this point. And she was a hit on Broadway, but, like, she was not the megastar that she is later at this point. And there was kind of an open question of is she going to transition well to film because plenty of broadway stars had tried to make a transition to movies and it hadn't gone and that was a question in the making of this movie but at the same time there are a ton of stories in the making of this that were widespread in the press about frankly barbara streisand being very barbara streisand during the making of it Uh, the dp allegedly threatened to walk off the film if she didn't stop telling him how to shoot her the writer, Isabel Leonard called working with Streisand a deflating, ego-crushing experience. There were a lot of reports that she and William Wyler butted heads a lot. Those are harder to nail down because both of them have said that they actually got along great. And William Wyler says he thinks the producer stirred those rumors just to create publicity. My point, though, like, she had already sold so many records. Like... She's still, even though she's not tested in film yet, she's still already a bona fide star by the time that this movie is being made. I'm not disputing that, but... Yeah. 
I, I can tell you, like, the people at Columbia were not treating her that way. Sure. It takes a lot of film power to, like, influence editing. No, I, I don't disagree. Just saying, she, you know, in the six years from when she put out the first Barbara Streisand album to that, like, she's already a bona fide star. <laughs> Again, I'm not disputing that. I just think that... The assumption that that level of stardom would transition to film is not really one that we should make, especially in the 1960s. And frankly, she was coming in without a ton of knowledge of film. One of my favorite anecdotes was that when she heard the director of Ben-Hur had been hired to make it, and she didn't know William Wyler by name, she said, Chariots? How is he with people? Like women? Is he any good with actresses? Which is a very funny question to ask about William Wyler, who directed tons of iconic female roles in the 40s and 50s. But yeah, I mean, part of the thing with Streisand is that, like, for a long time, she was not the person attached to this movie. Uh, Columbia wanted Shirley MacLaine. Wild. Which is a little funny because the next year, Shirley MacLaine does replace Gwen Verdon in Sweet Charity. So, like, that switch of replacing the Broadway person in the movie does happen with Shirley. But Shirley MacLaine playing Fanny Bryce is a wild concept. <laughs> well, I mean, when they were developing the musical... Like, at one point, like, Anne Bancroft was attached. Still a wild concept. <laughs> right. Carol Burnett was offered the role on Broadway, and she was like, no, you should get a Jewish person. Yeah. It's just, I think, coming from a, you know, 2023 perspective, there's definitely an element of, like, the radicalness of casting Barbra Streisand in a lead that would kind of influence... Or, you know, lend some credence to the commentary on, like, her appearance and not being pretty just because of the stronger anti-Semitism at the time. But seeing this and then seeing Leah Michelle on Broadway in Funny Girl, it's just like, what what are we doing here, guys? Like, what are we doing? You can't. Just have people constantly talking about how ugly Barbara Streisand and Leah Michelle are. Especially Leah Michelle, where there's, like, no element that isn't just conventional attractiveness. It's, to quote Barbie, producers, this is not the person you cast if you're trying to make this point. <laughs> it just plays weirdly. Yeah. I know, it's just, like, uncomfortable to watch, in a way. Hearing her constantly talk about how ugly she is... And people, like, back her up. It's just so detached from reality that it takes you out of it. I get it with Streisand in this moment in time. Absolutely. Yeah. It makes I can't sense. speak to Leah Michelle because I have not seen that. I mean, you know what she looks like. Honestly, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. This is, like, post-buccal fat removal, too. And you could literally see the shadows of her cheekbones on her cheeks. Because they're so sunken in now. I mean, every actress that's played Fanny in this Broadway run is beautiful. Like, it's, the understand everybody, and it's just, yeah, it's such a, I think that it is hard from a 2023 lens, period. Because the script is written in the 60s with, again, a 20s mindset that is anti-Semitic in the ideas of conventional attractiveness. I'm going to say it. I think the script is bad. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think this movie's very good. No. Uh, it's entertaining. I think Barbara good. Streisand is, is good in it. 
I don't think the yeah. movie is Correct. Good. I think they're, like, and again, I took a nap during this. And when I came back, I was like, maybe this movie has suddenly gotten good, or maybe I'm just more awake. And that sequence that I came back for was the most beautiful ride in the world, like, comedy musical number. And I was like, okay, this thing actually is good. And then it, like, sank back again. And, like, what I felt like watching this movie was that there are these moments of brilliance with Barbra Streisand. And then everything else just kind of, like, meanders along. And, like, some of that is William Wyler, who I think is only occasionally, like, being really William Wyler about it and, like, finding cool shots, which he does at times. But a lot of the time, it's just kind of dull to look at. And then, also, I just felt like the story didn't always know what to do with her. Where the moments where she was really active, choosing what to do, choosing, all right, I'll go on stage and I'll do the comedy version. All right, I'll leave the tour and I'll go be with Nikki. Those were exciting. But then there are these long other chunks of the movie where it feels like, partially, it's just skipping through time so much that it's just like, all right, things seem to be continuing to go decently well for Fanny. It works better in the musical. I think the stage version is more coherent in a lot of that way than the movie. And having actual characters besides Fanny and Nikki, like, with something to do helps. Because in this movie, no one is, like, a character except for those two. And, and even Nikki doesn't really and, yeah. do much until no, the end. Yeah, I, I I wholeheartedly agree. I think it's, you know, the opening shots of this movie and, like, you see her for the first time. And you're, I just went, oh, my. And I said out loud that's to great. myself. That's great. And that's William Wyler. I said out loud to myself alone in my apartment. Oh, my God. She's such a star. But, like, when she's, you're right. When she's not on screen, you just don't care. <laughs> I was tweeting stuff today from Roger Ebert's review of the movie, which rocks. And the opening line of the review is, the trouble with Funny Girl is almost everything except Barbara Streisand. That's fair. And it was funny reading reviews from the time, which are all basically, like, Ebert, I think, gave this four stars. Like, all the reviews are like, Barbara Streisand, incredible. Everything else, eh. But she's so incredible. She's the definition of a showstopper. The problem is, at some point, the show needs to go. Right. <laughs> But every, that's every song, every, yeah, every musical number is a showstopper. But you're right, it kind of, it makes it feel really segmented when it's like that. I kind of agree with the actress who played Mrs. Bryce because no one else really gets a song, gets a chance to do something to, like, break up the just watching Fanny make choices there's nothing else happening. There's no one else commenting on Fanny's choices. You don't get a chance to develop, like, a relationship with other characters. In the stage version, Mrs. Bryce and the choreographer from Keeney's, who is actually, like, her good friend in the musical, do a number together where there's tap dancing and, you know, a lot more it just happening, which helps. But it's still not, like, my favorite musical. You're saying it would have been better if they had cast Frank Sinatra as Nicky and followed his request to give Nicky more to do and his own song and stuff like that. Eh. I I think more people on, I can't remember the street, 
Henry uh, Street. Henry Street. More people from Henry Street having more to do. I yeah. I I don't think it's Nikki needs more to do. I think it's Mrs. Strakosh needs more to do. Sure. Which in the musical she does. In the on the state in the stage version she does. Ultimately, I think the biggest problem with this movie is that it is a family production. And that's true of this stage show too, but even more so with the movie. In that it is produced by Ray Stark, who is Fanny Bryce's son-in-law. He is married to the daughter of Fanny Bryce and Nikki Arnstein. And he had been working since like the 40s to try to get like the Fanny Bryce story told. Like he did all these taped interviews with her and like hired biographers to turn it into a book and then he like never liked the book they came out with. So then he hired a succession of screenwriters like Ben Hecht, I think, was the first one, but there were, like, ten different screenwriters that he hired over the years, like, make the Fanny Bryce movie that my family will like. And then, finally, it was uh, Isabel Lennart, who, by the way, named names to Huack. Yep. Like, over. a lot of names. Funny girls over. She wrote a script for a, just, drama called My Man, which, I gotta say, I know it's Fanny Bryce's main song. But it also, I think, reflects the misplaced priorities of this movie that should be more about the funny girl being funny. I don't disagree. <laughs> we will get to that. She's, point. she's not funny in this movie. She gets movie. like two moments to be funny and they both kill and that's it. Yeah. At that point, the My Man screenplay, Mary Martin gets a hold of it. Mary Martin, most famous for playing Peter Pan. And she was like, you should make this a musical. At that point, another producer suggested bringing on Julie Stein and Stephen Sondheim to do the music for it. And Sondheim said, you shouldn't do this with Mary Martin. You need a Jewish actress. That's when then Anne Bancroft comes on for a while. Carol Burnett is offered the role. And eventually, pushed largely by Julie Stein, they land on Barbara Streisand. So that's like where the movie comes from. But I just think like so many of the frustrations that I have with this movie click into place when you're like, oh, this is like, this is like Yankee Doodle Dandy. It's like the people who lived this are now making the movie to make themselves look good. So that like in real life, Nikki Arnstein, the producer's father-in-law, was like a rampant crook who bleeded Fanny Bryce dry, pleading not guilty to the securities exchange, convincing her that he was not guilty. He He was like a total dirtbag. I mean, this is like how I call Bohemian, I always refer to Bohemian Rhapsody as Brian May's fever dream. Like, right. it's the same concept. <laughs> you don't get a good movie from people that lived it, which sounds weird, but too emotionally attached. Nikki Arnstein and Fanny Bryce were one another's second marriages. Fanny Bryce met Nick Arnstein just before he did 14 months in Sing Sing for a wiretapping scheme. The man was doing wiretapping crime in, like, 1913. There were barely wires. Right. He basically invented wiretapping. Yeah, Fanny then started visiting him weekly. He was still married at that point. His wife sued Fanny Bryce for alienation of affection. By the time he got a divorce from his first wife, he married Fanny within like a month. She was seven months pregnant by that point. And then, like I said, during their marriage, he continued to do schemes. He did not turn himself into the cops like in the movie. Instead, he went on the run, then pleaded not guilty, drained her money, This is a guy, I mean, this guy had been a scumbag since he was a kid. There are reports of him betting on his own bicycle races and then throwing them on purpose. He's just so awful that, like, when we talk about the believability of the romance, if this was a fictional story, I would rate it so low. 
And this is the cleaned up version of him. The movie makes him this tragic scoundrel who just like can't handle the fact that his wife is successful, which is itself annoying, but the fact that it's crap. And even then, I get so every time she's like, oh no, like I'm like I get so mad <laughs> because he sucks. He still sucks. This cleaned up version of him still sucks. Why do you want to keep fighting for this person? who does not give a shit about you. Did either of you read the crazy thing about Omar Sharif being cast in this movie? No. No. Okay, so originally they talked about Frank Sinatra, but Sinatra would only do it if the part was expanded. So then they cast Omar Sharif, and then the six-day war starts. And at that point, studio executives are like, is this bad to have an Egyptian-slash-Jewish couple in our big movie? And the studio wanted to fire Omar Sharif, at which point Streisand and William Wyler both threatened to quit. But then, like, the promotional campaign is getting underway, and Columbia was sending out, like, promotional stills, and one of them is of them, like, on that red couch in the restaurant that is also a sex place. Yep. And a still of that was published in an Egyptian newspaper and started a fairly widespread movement in Egypt to strip Omar Sharif of citizenship. Well, he did self-exile. At some point. They also, by the way, were banging Offset, which helped end Streisand's marriage to Elliot Gould. That sounds like it would play a role in it. And of uh-huh. course, this is all before John Peters. The movie was a huge hit. It was the number one film in the United States of 1968. Obviously. A year in which Oliver wins the best picture. Yes. Oliver also wins most of the Oscars that Funny Girl is nominated for. Picture, director, cinematography. Score, original song. Have you seen Oliver? Yes. I have seen Oliver, but I remember not- I mean, I know the stage show Oliver. I remember nothing about the movie. I've seen it many, many, many times. Why have you seen Oliver so many times? They showed it so much in school. That's so weird. Oliver- It's also long. Yes. We watched it so many times in school. I didn't know the difference between Oliver and Oliver and Company as a child for a long time, so when people kept talking about Oliver, I thought they were talking about the Singing Cat movie. The difference is runtime. And um, amount of Billy Joel music. Very much Oliver and so. Company is like 80 minutes. Oliver is a full two and a half hours. Yep. <laughs> Here's our top 10 for 1968. Normally I would make Mark guess them, but we got a lot to do today. Number one, Funny Girl. Number two, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Wow. Number three, The Odd Couple. Number four, Bullet, soon to be a picture by Steven Spielberg. Number five, Oliver, exclamation point. Number six, Planet of the Apes. Number seven, Rosemary's Baby. Number eight, Romeo and Juliet. Number nine, Yours, Mine, and Ours. And number ten, The Lion in Winter. Wait, are you saying that Oliver won cinematography over 2001 A Space Odyssey? I don't think so. I think that one actually went to 2001. Oliver was nominated. The winner was Romeo and Juliet. 2001 A Space Odyssey, not nominated. Fascinating. The nominees for cinematography in 1968 were Romeo and Juliet, the winner, Funny Girl, Oliver, Star, which is a Julie Andrews musical at Fox, and something called Ice Station Zebra. So that Romeo and Juliet, also something they showed a lot in school. Yeah. Um... Mark, when we talked about doing this, I was like, maybe we make this our next Best Picture slate, where we, like, cover all the Best Picture nominees of 1968. But I was like, then, one, we would have to watch Oliver, and I don't feel like it. And two, 
This Romeo and Juliet is currently being sued by the act, like, people are being sued by the actors who played Romeo and Juliet. Because they were like, yeah, we were teenagers and couldn't really consent to be naked in this movie. Yeah, yeah I think that's fair. So I don't feel like we need to watch it. No. We also did watch it in school. Our teacher held up a piece of cardboard in front of the TV during the nudity. Uh-huh, yeah, I think that's what happened to me. So we could get the language still. We signed consent forms. We watched it without that cut. In there. I believe I was in sixth grade. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they would have allowed even consent forms. Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, we had parental consent forms. I think this was in seventh grade, and we saw the whole thing. Did either of you know there's a Funny Girl sequel? Yes. I did after reading the Wikipedia page for Funny Girl before this movie. Yeah, it's called Funny Lady. I had no clue. And it's also a musical. It has songs by Candor and Ebb, which... I don't know the songs. Sounds like an upgrade. Yeah, clearly did not leave an impression on the zeitgeist. I do kind of want to see James Caan in a musical, though. Yeah. We can try and find it. Okay, we have to talk about Lion in Winter. Yeah, (laughs) we have to talk about the 10th most successful movie of 1968, The Lion in Winter. The box office sensation. Shocking that this was number 10. Look, it's got movie stars. Back then, Oscar nominations could really move box office. And back then, we had culture, dang it. It's got a future knight and a future Bond. (laughs) Yeah. Actually, Timothy Dalton was offered Bond off of this movie. Because when Connery first left and they were making On Her Majesty's Secret Service, they offered it to Timothy Dalton. And he was like, no. So they did George Lazenby. And then 20 years later, they're like, Dalton, you still interested? (laughs) Wow. Um, I am just going to say it. I loved this movie. This movie's so good. I loved every second of this movie. It is just Peter O'Toole and Catherine Hepburn acting at each other for two, almost two and a half hours. There's a scene late in the movie that's like just 20 minutes of the two of them in a room and it's electrifying. It really is. And they are both so funny when they're being snippy with each other. It's just so good. Watching her roll up in her barge at the beginning. Like when she first arrives at Shinon. But it's also like great royalty acting where it's like she is a prisoner. But also she's owning everything that's happening. Because she's also like a prisoner and still one of the most powerful people in Europe at the time. Right. Because she still has so much control. So The Lion in Winter is a basically fictional story about family and national politicking in the court of Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine in the Christmas of, I think, 1183? It kind of reminds me of Spencer, of like a made-up in-the-castle Christmas story. Sure. Dealing with some of the drama that we all know is coming. Right. Like... There's real touch points you know have happened and will happen that inform your, like, perspective on the story. But it's an entirely made-up situation. And it's adapted from a stage play by James Goldman, brother of William Goldman, the great screenwriter. You're telling me this was a play? I couldn't believe it. (laughs) I think every review of this movie that I read was, like, kind of like A Man for All Seasons. And I was like, yes, I'm picking up on that. I loved it so much more than I was expecting to. What's crazy is I think the play was kind of a flop. Like, it was sort of well-received in the theater community. Rosemary Harris got a Tony for it. But it, like, did not run long. It lost money. 
But Martin Paul, who was the producer, had optioned a novel by James Goldman and then was basically like, while you're at it, why don't you write a screenplay of Lion in Winter? That thing's pretty good. Interesting. And then Paul was supposed to make a movie called The Ski Bum with Peter O'Toole and that product fell through. So Paul was like, hey, Peter, you want to do Lion in Winter? Apparently not caring that Peter O'Toole was like 35 when they made this movie. But look, they age him up. You know, this is they not do. that long after he's the prettiest man in the world in Lawrence of Arabia. And he looks like a wizened old king. They do a good job yeah. with the old age makeup. Yeah. And they do. Also, Eleanor of Aquitaine was like 11 years older than Henry II. I mean, Catherine Hepburn was much older than Peter O'Toole. But I do they think made they, this movie. they aged him up in a way... Because, like, also they wouldn't be able to actually get, uh, probably age him up this much believably. But I appreciated that, like, they aged him up where she still looked, you know, realistically older than kind of the characters the people were. His character is 50 in the movie. Catherine Hepburn is 58 when they shoot it. She still looks great. (laughs) She looks amazing. One thing I was struck by watching it and thinking about it was, Mark, we years ago, did an episode on Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which is her last movie with Spencer Tracy, because Spencer Tracy dies, like, right after that movie finishes shooting. And what that means is, this is her first big project after the death of Spencer Tracy. And I think it's really interesting to think about Katherine Hepburn doing this movie, living in that moment. It is such a good performance, and it, it like, covers the full extent of human emotions. It's kind of fun that this is the Oscars acting tie because there's such different kinds of performances. It's such a good story too of like, I know she was a star, but it's still like the first time actor winning at the same time that the, you know, uh, you'd say like established, but she also, and like, you know, at the time, people were probably like, oh, she's she's up there in age. She's 58. She's probably on her way out. Little do they know she's going to win one more Oscar in a, a decade. But to your point, it's sort of this star is born moment, not to put too fine a point on it with Barbara. And then Hepburn with this becomes the first three-time winner of Best Actress. But it's, it, it is the same in which what we were talking about with Barbara. It's like when she is there, like you cannot take your eyes off of her. Like... She's so compelling in what she does with her face and all of these things. Like, she's just so compelling. The thing Lion and Winter has over Funny Girl is um, every other character is also good and engaging in the Lion and Winter. That's because, like, the third tier character is Anthony Hopkins. Their children are all so terrible. And I would probably also disown them. But the acting is so good. Yeah. Henry brings up King Lear early on, but that is kind of what you have to think about. We are just like, oh, you have a bunch of kids who suck. They do all suck. At least King Lear had one kid that didn't suck. That's true. Granted, they also have like 10 daughters, the two of them, but they're all married off and gallivanting with their husbands, I guess. Yeah, but like, is this movie set two rebellions in or just one rebellion in of children against their king father? I think it's one rebellion. Rebellion in maybe two. There's three, right? There's three total in real life. So I think it's two because I think it's the one with the young Henry involved. Then the one that's like just Richard. And then the third one, which is after, is Richard and Jeffrey and John all together. 
Yeah, so I think this is the one that then puts them together, right? Because they're talking about that as a novel concept of giving them something to unite around. Because the reason that the Queen of England, Eleanor of Aquitaine, is imprisoned is because she keeps organizing rebellions against her husband. Eleanor of Aquitaine is, like, such an interesting character or figure in history. She was... You know, the daughter of the, I don't know, the Duke of Aquitaine? Duke, or the, yeah, the Duke Count, of Aquitaine. Which is this huge territory in southwestern France. She's married to King Louis VII of France. They get an annulment after 15 years of marriage because there were no sons. But the official grounds for the annulment were they were too related to each other. So, oh, they shouldn't be married. She then marries Henry II, to whom she is more closely related. It's so funny. The Middle Ages. The best. Because she was the duchess in her own right. And even after getting married, her husband did not, like, control the Aquitaine. But still, she had to travel, like, with armed guards everywhere. Because this is an era where people were still, like, kidnapping women and forcing them into marriage. Which is very against canon law, but a lot of priests were very willing to go with it. I mean, but that's, like, all those, like, Arthurian legends were supposed to be, like, stop doing that. Yeah. Like, the social function they performed was, this is bad. They did it anyway. Catherine, what did you think of Lion in Winter? Mark and I obviously loved it. (laughs) No, I really liked it. I don't, I think I would like it more if I had not watched it in two pieces when I was exhausted. You just pause it and you you take your break right after Don't Rain on My Parade, right after Eleanor sings. Exactly. Um, No, I actually think I paused it. What if she sang that as the boat was sailing away? Hey, like, Henry they just had the same second. shot. A helicopter shot. I think I actually paused it at a really good point. Because it was right after the fight with Peter and all the tapestry stuff. When oh, Ele- That seems incredible. Where just one kid after another keeps popping out from behind a tapestry. Which is also when I had to Google when the Hays Code stopped. <laughs> when I realized we were openly talking about sodomy. I was like, okay, great. 1968, we're talking about sodomy. Why is the Hayes Code not here? <laughs> yeah, two factors. One is that the production code was killed in 1967. Movies like Bonnie and Clyde and The Graduate helped replace that yeah. with the modern rating system. The other is that as a British production, this could maybe have gotten made and just not released in the US. The censorship rules were different there. That was like the third thing that made me look it up because in the opening scene, you also have Henry refer to Eleanor as a bitch and you have him referring to himself like molesting children which is not great and i don't know i'm gonna agree with you on that one and i don't love that it's referenced at all in this film but kind of three strikes had me googling Hayes code in a lot of cases you know again by this point the production code was gone this was released under the rating system but a lot of the movies that helped push on it were adaptations of stage shows Because then the argument was like, why is it that theater audiences can handle seeing this, but you don't think film audiences can? Like, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf played a big role in helping to break the power of the production code. It was just jarring in a way that I was not expecting in the first five minutes of this film. The movie starts off aggressively. Yeah. (laughs) Can you imagine Elizabeth Taylor as her character from Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf as... Eleanor of Aquitaine in this movie. My wife brought that up. She's like, I'm getting really strong Elizabeth Taylor vibes watching this. Yeah. I think what it really is is we're getting really strong Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf vibes. 
Well, it's this family locked up together. There's all kinds of like weird sex stuff going on. So much stuff. I mean, it's a good, I almost want to call it a living room drama, but it's not a living room drama because it's happening in a castle or a keep. Let's call it a keep. But that's kind of the vibe, right? Like every you throw everybody into the same room and see what happens. Uh, you know what happens is a great time. <laughs> <laughs> and almost a lot of familial murder. Almost, but everyone gets away this time. Yeah. Key I don't think any of time. them ever actually murder each other. They just kill each other with sadness. And then there's Eleanor of Aquitaine who outlives like all of her sons except John and continues to serve as the regent of England into John's reign in the early 1200s. What's crazy is she was never actually officially the regent. She just exercised the power. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> fair enough. John, of course, famously like the worst king of England who lost basically all their holdings in France and got the entire country excommunicated. I love the joke about getting excommunicated again. There's some really good one-liners in this movie. This movie is funny. I did not expect to laugh as much as I did watching this movie. How was your crossing did the channel part for you? (laughs) 10 out of 10. You know what I do want to see? In the original Broadway cast, the Timothy Dalton part as Philip II of France was played by Christopher Walken. And frankly, I would watch Christopher Walken in every role in this movie. (laughs) (laughs) I would watch Christopher Walken do a one-man show of The Lion in Winter. Oh my gosh. That would be incredible. Yeah. If you loved The Lion in Winter, did you know that you can watch a hit modern television adaptation from the year 2015? Uh, No, I did Did not know know? there was a hit adaptation in 2015. The TV show Empire is very inspired by the film (laughs) The Lion in Winter. (laughs) I did read that claim on Wikipedia. Lion. I did read that claim on Wikipedia. I did not realize that was why they were named the Lions. I looked it up. There are a couple other articles about it, too. But it's also the, like, King Lear inspiration in The Lion in Winter, too. But, come on. They're called the Lions. Did Empire really not premiere until 2015? Yeah, it's not that old a show. I assumed it was earlier than that. You also have the option for the 2003 television remake starring glenn close and patrick stewart i mean that's fun which honestly feels like a great time i feel like that one would be less funny almost i don't know they're both capable of being yeah sort of stewart especially kind of riley funny and then i mean glenn close of course cruella Deville. right glenn close quietly the queen of camp Oh gosh, Jonathan Rhys Myers. She was fatally attracted. Jonathan Rhys Myers is King Philip II in this version. Basically, you just gotta cast a hottie. That's, that, that's the requirement for the role. A quietly menacing hot man. Yeah. Yeah. So we should probably start moving towards the romance of these two movies. Before we did, just since again we're brought here by the, the famous Oscars tie where at the Oscar ceremony in the spring of 1969, Ingrid Bergman was going on stage, and the PricewaterhouseCooper guy who was handing her the envelope, like, much more strongly than usual, was like, read every word on the card. And Bergman later said she was like, I thought he just, like, really wanted me to read the nominees. But it was the PWC guy knowing that there was a tie involved. And so she gets up there, she goes, opens the envelope, she goes, the winner, it's a tie! Catherine Hepburn, of course, was not there because Catherine Hepburn never went to the Oscars because she was too embarrassed by the idea of losing. So somebody went up, accepted it on her behalf, then Streisand gave her speech. 
She said, hello, hello gorgeous, gorgeous, to the Oscar statue. My favorite thing about all of this that I just learned today is that three days after the ceremony, there was a letter printed in the Hollywood Reporter from the Academy and PWC, which clarified that, yes, a true mathematical tie had occurred. There were multiple recounts done to verify. And then here's from the end of that letter. Barbara Streisand was recently admitted to Academy membership. There was, from among 2,000 eligible voters, a dead heat for Best Actress. It is logical to assume that Miss Streisand voted for herself. Therefore, had she not recently become eligible to vote, she would have lost by one vote. Wow. Wow. That's kind of crazy. I think we need more ties. I mean, the craziness of it, too, is that, like, today, the star of, like, a big new movie would not be admitted to the Academy until, like, the following summer. So that particular circumstance would not recur today. But Funny Girl opened and was such a smash, they were like, Babs, you're in. Join the Academy. And that resulted in the tie. That's so cool. Also so funny that they had to publish that letter. Yes. <laughs> From what I've read, clearly there were a lot of people being like, this is crap. There wasn't a real tie. And just over and over again, they were like, we promise you there was a tie. Well, I mean, think back to them announcing the wrong best picture. Like, when something weird like that happens, like, they have to come back and explain it. Otherwise, people yeah. are going to think something's rigged. I still think that, like, there should be, like, a 50-year time frame of releasing vote totals. Like, 50 years after an Oscar ceremony, they should give us the vote totals. I would love to see the vote totals. Yeah. Five, five years after the death of every nominee. That'd be great, too. Some of those we'd be waiting a long time. I would take that deal. All right, Catherine. Ding. I did not have a timer for that, but I did have a soft, when we hit an hour into recording, we needed to move on, and here we are. <laughs> so, Catherine, as our guest, it's going to be your job to guide us through the romance of both of these movies in five points each. And so, what we're going to do, just to make sure we're moving efficiently through both Funny Girl and The Lion in Winter, is we're going to ask you to move back and forth. So, we'll do point one of each movie and point two of each movie, and that way we'll end everything at the same time. Great. And I will make liberal use of the bell if necessary. Great. And for clarification for Lion in Winter, because you could, I don't know why you would, but you could choose Henry and Alice as your romance. You certainly could. You could. Obviously, it's Henry and Eleanor. That's I assume we will mention Alice. Yeah. At some oh, point. yeah. No, she comes up. <laughs> she comes up for sure. Talking about skeevy sexual things with Henry. I don't think it's that cool that he's banging a lady he brought into his household when she was seven. Also, his son's fiance. Yeah, who is betrothed to one of his sons when he finally decides an heir, but also Richard. <laughs> and that part did happen. Like, Henry II was really banging her. Oh, yeah. <sighs> Gross. I just, this movie should have made John less annoying because it's so hard to believe that he would be the favorite. He's so weird. The only explanation is that, like, he's the baby and Henry, like, likes him that way. He's also the only one who hasn't led an armed revolt against him at this point, so there is that, You too. know, that might be the key. This characterization of King John is very consistent with the thumb-sucking lion in Disney's Robin Hood. It really is. All right, so Catherine, why don't you bring us to point ones? All right, so we're going to start with Funny Girl. And so point one is 
the meeting at Keeney's. You know, you've probably heard this very often that it's boring, but uh, I had to come back to tell you how much I enjoyed what you did. It's not so boring. Uh, you'd be surprised how boring it isn't. <laughs> You're going to be a big star someday, Miss... Uh... Uh, Bryce, Fanny Bryce. Fanny Bryce. I look for it in lights. Uh, what'd you say your name was? Nick Arnstein. Nicky Arnstein, Nicky Arnstein. What a beautiful, beautiful name. So Fanny makes her debut in Mr. Keeney's, what is it, Eight Gorgeous Girls or Seven Gorgeous Girls or something like that show. And backstage, here appears Omar Sharif. She finds out what his name is and then sings his name in her head many times. I do kind of like the device where it literally just freeze frames and has her voice singing in voiceover. Like it was a cool way to do it because in like on stage, you can like very obviously like do a spotlight, do an aside. I did really like how you did, how they captured that in film. Cause imagine how weird it would be if you introduced yourself and then someone sang your name back to you a couple times. Look, I gotta say this because I feel like I gave William Wyler some crap despite the fact that I think there are some cool shots. I love the like swooping push over the Swan Lake thing, like that shot that introduces it. We should just imagine William Wyler was functionally deaf from shooting documentaries aboard bombers during World War II. And so the fact that he made any great musical sequences, let alone several, pretty awesome. As a part of this initial, if we want to call it a meet cute, I think people who like this movie would like Nick Arnstein would call it a meet cute. He wagers Fanny's job with Mr. Keeney. This is the kind of thing, this is movie nonsense, where you're like, oh boy, like, he got her $50 a week instead of, what was it, 12 And then at the end of the negotiation reveals, like, yeah, I couldn't back that up at all. Like, if he had decided to cave, you would have had no job. Don't do that. Don't mess with somebody's job like that. Exactly. She barely has a job. Yeah, so from the off, I'm like, wow, Nick, you suck. Well, he's a gambler. That's the problem. He loves the gambling. He's a professional gambler. This feels like a bad version of Guys and Dolls. <laughs> like, I feel like she needs to also be singing Adelaide's Lament as a part of this. Oh, Sadie, Sadie gets there. We'll get there. So they meet, and, uh, yeah, look, it's Omar Sharif. He is a hottie. You get it. Yeah. I would stop in my tracks, too. Have had that experience recently at stage doors with people who are just that attractive that you kind of get struck dumb. The real Nikki Arnstein, not as hot as Omar Sharif. No, no one really is. I can uh, I can drop a picture in the chat if you all are not sure what Nikki Arnstein looked like. But he just looked like a guy from like 1912. That's a guy. Really aggressive uh, part in his hair. You know a person is bad news when their Wikipedia page lists six other names as being among his aliases. Good lord. Jules Arnstein, Nick Arnold, Nicholas Arnold, Wallace Ames, John Adams, and J. Willard Adair. John Adams was not expecting the John Adams. It's a nice one just thrown in there. It'd be funny if it, like, just kept going. It was like, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison. But, like, fairly generic name. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's our initial meeting in Funny Girl. So, then we move to Lion in Winter. <laughs> and Henry is... The King of England! And he is hanging out in a meadow with Alice. And he decides that he's going to summon the bitch 
for Christmas. By which he means his still wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine, who lives locked up in a tower. Exactly. So then we cut to Eleanor, and we see her guard coming in with this iconically amazing look on her face. She's brought in on this, like, barge. Well, no, even before this, I'm thinking about when they tell her that there's going to be, they come in and she just goes, there's going to be a Christmas court. Right. And it's just, she has this look on her face that is so incredible. And then they bring her in on the barge. On this barge that is only big enough to have, like, it has, like, two turrets, like, ten oarsmen, and just a throne. It's so That's good. all the space there is on there. Good barge. It's so good. Well, when you sent the picture of her in her, like, black ensemble, looking like a Bene Gesserit, I lost it. Because she truly looks like she's about to, like, administer the Gum Jabbar test. So many of her looks, you're like, oh, she has a millennia-long breeding program underway. (laughs) I gotta find my dune somewhere, man. But that's also when he asks her if the channel parted for her. And so that's when you really, like, get their vibe. It's, like, this very much love-hate, mostly hate thing we got going on. And they both think they're the smartest person in the world. Only one of them is proven right. They truly only respect each other, too. Like, you get that immediately. It's so cool. And I love any time they're talking about each other, any time they're talking about the past. There's the moment where Henry talks about the first time he met Eleanor. He's like, yeah, I encountered her. At that point, she was married to Louis VII. And she and I shattered the commandments on the spot. (laughs) Which is such a great way of being like, immediately, we were banging. I also love how this movie just perpetuates, like, every historical myth about this era that has been proven false. Like, her dressing as an Amazon to ride into the, like, Second Crusade, that she slept with her uncle, that Richard was gay. Like, all of that just thrown in. All of this, the flavor. Anything that would be salacious, it's like, let's go. It's the 60s. We're feeling edgy. Also, wait, real quick. At one point when she says, it's 1183, we all have knives. Yes! (laughs) I just need to say, like, (laughs) can you imagine? I guess someone would say, like, it's 2023. We all have cell phones. But knives have existed for a lot longer than cell phones have. What if John died? No, I wasn't there! Why wasn't there? A knife! He saw a knife! Of course he has a knife. He always has a knife. We all have knives. It's 1183 and we're barbarians. How clear we make it. Oh, my piglets, we are the origins of war. Not history's forces, nor the times, nor justice, nor the lack of it, nor causes, nor religions, nor ideas, nor kinds of government, nor any other thing. We are the killers. We breed wars. It's so funny because it is one of those moments where it's like, you think about the Greta Gerwig quote when Little Women came out, where she was like, the thing we were trying to keep in mind over and over again was like, these were the most modern people who had ever lived, so we should be treating their lives like they are living in modernity. And I think that movie captures that. Nothing about the lion in winter is pretending towards modernity. Like, they're speaking in a dialect from no period. They are just, like, (laughs) trying to hit the halfway between, like, 1183. But not even that. They're trying to hit the halfway between, like, 1600 and 1940. And so, this, like, peculiarly modern phrasing 
just sticks out. It's so delightfully weird. Well, it's going to that too. Like no one's doing accent work. Like they're all just in their normal accents too. Good, cool. Love the Ridley Scott strategy. <laughs> not a single. I I will say not a single one of these people knew how to speak English. That's true. They were all speaking French. They were all French yeah. at the time. Which I mean, to be fair, I did think a bunch in this about my beloved The Last Duel. Which is a bunch of Americans speaking with American accents. Because, like, what, are they going to do French accents? That would be stupid. Yeah. I do think John actually did learn how to speak English as, like, the first king to learn English. Maybe he should have spent more time learning how to be a decent king. (laughs) (laughs) And not lose all of his land and power. I think the vicious taxation, while failing to win any land and then losing it, is probably what makes it worse. Look, I think Magna Carta is a net good, but, like, if you're the king who lets it happen, you're a moron. Yeah. I mean, Plantagenet's not great at their jobs. I mean, who was this? Who was after William? I feel like he was okay. Like, the first William? Yeah, after the Conqueror. William Rufus? I don't know. One of them, like, set up a court system. That's not right. Henry II. Henry II is the one that created the, like, English government. Well, forget that. He stinks. All right, let's move on. (laughs) Okay, so point number two. Lots happened in Fanny's life. She now works in the Ziegfeld Follies. I love going back and forth like this. I wasn't sure it would play, but I'm thrilled. <laughs> she, you know, was at Keeney's, successful, comedian. She gets a telegram from Florence Ziegfeld. Florence. Here's a fun Fanny Bryce fact. Florence. Fanny Bryce played herself in two different movies about Ziegfeld. She's great. Love Fanny. Including a Best Picture winner, The Great Ziegfeld. Yep. This movie really does not capture how obscenely wealthy she was by the, like, height of her career. No, it doesn't. No, because this movie has no interest in what's actually going on with her. It has to manufacture nonsense. True. You know, I would rather see a Fanny Bryce movie that's all about her time portraying Lil Snooks, an annoying child that she played for, like, 15 years on the radio. That would be great. I would watch that. So she is. She has convinced herself that Mr. Ziegfeld knows about her because Nick Arnstein said something to him. So she has her opening night, and who should appear after several months' absence but Nick Arnstein? And it turns out he does know Flo Ziegfeld. Yeah, she is, like, convinced that he is not just classy, but actually, like, wealthy and connected yeah and he is at best just connected but those connections are mostly debts correct he met all these people at a card game which he lost and he owes them money so he knows how to get in contact with them right they're always like nick great to see you do you have my money and yet she is convinced that he is the source of all of her newfound success. Well, this is the night he comes to Henry Street, right? Yes. She then invites him home to Henry Street. Basically, her mom throws a big party. She's like, my daughter is the star of the Ziegfeld Follies. No other mother on Henry Street has this. And you get some good interaction with Mrs. Strakosh, who's my favorite supporting character. Always. I love this whole little, like, collective of lesbian gamblers who all live together and play poker all the time. Quick wedding dress watch. I think the most <laughs> wedding dresses we've ever had in a single movie. Because there's a wedding dress musical number. Correct. Just sh- shout out your favorite. Summer, winter, spring, or autumn. Or pregnant. Which one had birds as a part of it? I believe that's summer. Yeah, yeah that one was, was my summer. favorite. 
It was basically, it was like partially like a bra made out of like what appeared to be full birds. I was about to say, most modern wedding dresses do not have nearly as much tits out vibe as the wedding dresses in this musical number. Well, that's the thing. It's the follies. When we started seeing stuff from the Ziegfeld Follies, I was like, all right, at what point are we going to get to the true Florence Ziegfeld, like, how far can we push the boundaries of almost nudity in the semi-legitimate theater? I mean, that was my whole thing. I didn't bat an eye at it. I was like, yep, that's the Follies. That's what Ziegfeld was famous for. He was like, I'm going to have hot girls. They're not going to be naked, but it's going to be close. I saw some of the, they found some of the original costumes when they renovated the New Amsterdam. And they're on display in the Museum of Broadway. And they're stunning, but also so small. <laughs> like, they're insane to look at. Like, it yeah. really, it's a- everything that you think it is, It that's what it was. It's kind of ridiculous. And as we sort of see in the movie, for the most part, Fanny Bryce was never really a part of, like, one of the Folly Girls. But the Ziegfeld Follies was a full-on variety show and so she was mostly doing comedy routines as a part of it yep so most importantly the end of this night she sings people with one person one very special person a feeling deep in your soul says you are half now your whole no more hunger but first be a person who needs people People who need people And the people In the Yeah, Nikki comes to the party, he meets her mom, he gambles with the old ladies, and then she sings people, which, like, I was not really ready for, because, again, I didn't really know Funny Girl, but as soon as the music started hitting, I was like, I don't know what this is gonna be, but this is gonna be the most Barbara Streisand song I've ever heard. It's... It was. Yes. Yeah, it was. I loved that song. That, like, seeing it live, like, I get chill, like, I got full body chills seeing that live. It's... I love that song. All right, let's talk about Eleanor. So I think we have kind of the first squabble that's continuing to set up their dynamic. They're coming in. She's bringing, Eleanor's bringing the gifts in. It's so funny watching Catherine Hepburn dressed like a Bene Gesserit witch carrying just piles of Christmas presents. And you're like, okay, intellectually, I know this is not how Christmas worked in the late 12th century, but it's even weirder that it's Catherine Hepburn. And, you know, Alice makes some comment about Eleanor's, like, she, you're still in love with him or whatever. Like, you just want him back. And then they send Alice away. And they start squabbling about which son should inherit. Right, because his chosen heir was killed after rebelling against him. So now it's the other three sons. And the question is, which one will be named as heir? And Eleanor wants it to be Richard soon to be Richard the Lionheart, played by Tony Hopkins. Yeah. His eyes. Always great. Who, it honestly sounds like a parent trap situation where he got young Henry and she got Richard. And like, 
neither of them raised the yes. other. Yeah. They were raising the kids separately and now dealing with it, right? Yeah. And he's decided that he wants King John to be the ruler, to be the sniveling, thumb-sucking ruler. And no one cares about Jeff. No one cares about Jeffrey, who is, like, a conniving schemer, but not particularly well-liked because he is a conniving schemer. And he literally, at some point, says, and no one ever cares about Jeff. And they're all like, yeah, Jeff, you suck. You are constantly betraying everybody. It's like a condition with you. What does Eleanor say to Richard? She's like, he'll betray us, but only if he thinks that we think that he won't or something. Like, it's he's always trying to double-cross everyone. Yeah, it's a bad way to go about things. It's just, like, there's no other way for him to become king, so I'm kind of like, why not just scheme? What else do you have going on? Like, what are you gonna do? Run the Duchy of Brittany? Come on! But, like, it doesn't even feel like he has any kind of, like, larger scheme. He's just, like, any moment any possible scheme presents itself, he's gonna jump on it and just, like, hope they all work out in the wash. I mean, his whole scheme is just to make everyone- It's like the strategy of just, like- confuse everybody is yeah, the plan make everyone seem terrible except him but that's how you luck yourself into the crown well except unless you're jeffrey in which case you never rule and the other two both do well he also yeah. dies like immediately after the events of this movie would have taken place didn't know that don't know anything about jeffrey i only know because i looked it up but i'm pretty sure he just like wah, wah, very quickly after this well Maybe he should have been a better person. Yeah, so this really kind of sets up, A, the stakes for the movie, but B, the chemistry and just the level of intellect that they have that they very clearly do not share with anyone else. It's also just interesting the extent to which they're willing to be, like, fairly open with one another, where everyone is always scheming with everyone else. But anytime Henry and Eleanor are in a room together, they're just like, here's what I'm doing. Here's what you're doing. We'll see who wins. Well, because it's they're they're trying to in trying to out scheme. It's like I said, they both think they're the most intelligent person in the world. And so they're trying to prove that to each other. Like, I know what I'm doing. I also know what you're doing. So, like, here's this trap that I'm laying for you and you're going to get caught in it no matter what you try to do. Even with me telling you that this trap is what I'm laying. They rock. I'm such a fan. I'd vote for both of them. Unfortunately. That's the Jeffrey strategy of voting. (laughs) In the Middle Ages, no one gets to vote. Not if you're in Poland, or if you're an elector of the Holy Roman Empire. But we're not in Poland. We're in France. Oh, that's true. All right. Well, uh, let's have a ding. All right. So... Fanny has now become quite successful in the Follies, so much so that, again, several months later, having not seen Nick again because he was going to Kentucky. Imagine going to Kentucky from New York in the 20s. It took us days to get to Kentucky driving. I mean, we could have made it in one if we didn't stop and do stuff. Yeah, but imagine going in And to be clear, it took us two days. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that torrential downpour really made it feel longer. (laughs) Yeah, but hey, that torrential downpour got us to Mamma Mia, here we go again. And almost kicked out of an Alamo draft house. (laughs) We did not almost get kicked out of an Alamo draft house. You were quite loud. (laughs) We were fine. But, so they're on tour with the Follies and are in Baltimore Union Station? (laughs) Question mark? I think so. 
They're in Baltimore. By this point, Fanny's mom has been relegated exclusively to a voice role. Yeah. And they get off the train to start their week stint in Baltimore. And who does she see on the platform but Nikki Arnstein? Nikki Arnstein! Nikki Arnstein! And she goes, and at first, it's kind of telling them off a little bit. Like, where have you been? Remember when you called me never? Yeah. Remember when you were like, hey, we should hang out. We had this lovely night on Henry Street. And then I haven't seen you, and it's been months. And he's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I had this other, I was with this other person. This other person is his racehorse. Here's what I want to know. Why isn't she dating other men in this period? Because she's too busy being a star, maybe? I just feel like Fanny should have a life besides this because she is funny and cool. And instead it's like, I met this guy one time. Yeah. I don't love the, the, the love at first sight thing not really working for me here. And he invites her to dinner. This dinner is hilarious. It's like a, one room at a fancy restaurant. The whole room is red. It's like Supreme Leader Snoke lives in this room. I don't love this song. It's no. I am what it's I am woman, you are man. Or no, I am man, you are woman, let's kiss. Is like the I mean, funny, but it's not supposed to be. It's a little rapey. You are someone I've admired. Still our friendship leaves something to be desired. Does it take more explanation than this? You are woman, I am man. Let's kiss. Honestly. I just meant the literal line. Yes. Literal line, funny. In the context, a little rapey. (laughs) This is one of the scenes where we get the most, like, good William Wyler photography because he makes really great use of the mirror. So they have this dinner date. They hook up. There's a lot of business about the fact that there is a couch in the room. And she's like, oh, so um, did you invite me here to hook up? And he's like, I don't know. Like, I, th- I thought we might. And she's like, okay, were you going to do that before dinner, after dinner? Like, is my stomach going to be full? He also orders dinner for her in French on this menu. And she's like, but I thought you were ordering steak and potato, like roast beef and potatoes. And he's like. I did order roast beef and potatoes. It was just in French. So then, you know, they have this whatever amazing dinner. They they think it's an amazing dinner. And then they spend all of their time together the rest of the week in Baltimore. And they fall in love. But then Nikki's racehorse loses. But they're clearly just like banging constantly. Yeah, obviously. To the point where we do get a cut back to Brooklyn and her mom and the lady and the ladies of Henry Street. And it's like we haven't really heard from Fanny this week. Normally, she's so by her, like, stays in her room when she's on tour. But this week, she's doing all this other stuff. Who's the source of that? Nick Arnstein. Her mom doesn't like it. No, her mom is right. Yeah. Um, but then he ditches, and this is where we get to the boat stuff, right? Yeah. He's like, hey, my horse lost. I have no more money. I'm going to sail to Europe. And she's like, what? <laughs> And she's like, and you'll be gone how long? And he's like, I can never say how long. I have to go where the wind takes me. But it's not Europe that I really want. It's the people that are bored on the boat to Europe so I can win all their money. But then he tells her he loves her. And she's like, yes, but I also love you. She ends up 
quitting the Follies. Don't rain on my parade all the way onto the boat. She, like, chases him. Yeah, has a big musical number. I'm going to say, I don't think she should quit her job for this guy. I, yeah. Don't rain on my parade. Great song. Don't quit your job to follow a man. Especially not this man. <laughs> Is this trip also then when we get, like, the proposal and stuff? Yeah. Because I just, I will say, one of the things I do love is Barbara has this incredible moment of physical comedy when he says we should get married. Where, like, she, having joined him on the boat, is clearly like, so, all right, I'm here, and we love each other. And when people love each other, they get married. And he's like, oh, okay, so I think we should get married? And she immediately does this, like, full-body, like, flail and, like throws herself into his lap to be like, oh my gosh, do you think so? And it's hysterical. It's great. And it's like, this should be the whole movie. Yes. And they end up getting married on the boat. You also have the whole Sadie, Sadie, married lady number. But yeah. Too long. They get married. And I don't love that decision for her. Let's talk about Eleanor. So Henry and Eleanor are going back and forth, trying to outmaneuver each other. And it ends up with an almost wedding in the middle of the night. <laughs> I won't say one of them. Now, what of them? Say it! What makes no sense? Why give me up? What do you get? What are you gaining? Why the Aquitaine, of course. What's that again? Your mother gets her freedom, and I get the Aquitaine. That is the proposition, isn't it? You did agree. Of course she did. I knew it. It was all pretense, and I believed it all. I meant it all. No wedding. There'll be no wedding. But my boy, look, Dunham's waiting. You should be have to marry her for my sake. It isn't much to ask. Never. I promised her to Philip. Think of my position. Damn the wedding and to hell with your position. You don't dare defy me, don't I? This is hilarious. Because one of the big open questions is, what's going to happen to Alice? Who is the daughter of the former king of France, Louis VII. The sister of the current king of France. And she was effectively sold to Henry years ago with the promise that she would be married into the royal family of England. And so far, that has not happened. Henry, who of course is married, is banging Alice on the reg. Because she's sold with the condition that she will be married to the heir. Right. And he hasn't and chosen an heir. <laughs> hasn't chosen an heir. So he's like, Alice is going to marry one of my kids at some future date. <laughs> And so now Philip II, the new king of France, is here, and he's like, look, either she's got to marry your heir, or you got to give me that land back that we gave you for taking her off our hands. And Henry's like, well, under no circumstances am I giving back that land, so I guess she's marrying one of my kids. All right, let's go. And they go, and they get in front of a priest, and all the sons are there. It's a great scene where nobody quite knows what's going on. They're all kind of upset, because none of them really want this to happen. But, like, we think it's going to be Richard, maybe. Like, he's Anthony Hopkins. Yeah, we're pretty sure. And like, we think then Eleanor is going to win because by this decree, Alice has to marry the heir. But then Alice pitches this fit with Henry. She's like, Henry, I thought we loved each other and had sex all the time. Why are you just throwing me at a random one of your kids? Even though she's known that this was going to happen basically her entire life. And so it all ends up with them yelling at each other at various points in this scenario both henry and eleanor think that they've won but it ends up with them all yelling at each other nobody getting married and the priest's walking out the door 
What a good movie. <laughs> Alice wins, kind of, gets what she wants. Yeah. But Eleanor realizes what Henry's actual weakness is in that moment. Because he was not willing to part with Alice. So that's really, that's that's point number three. They get a greater understanding of each other and we almost had a wedding. Not of our main couple, but we almost had a wedding. Which I believe takes us to the opening night of the Ziegfeld Follies. Part two. So Fanny and Nikki have a baby. All this stuff's happening. And then she returns to the Follies. Is this baby a boy or a girl? I believe this one's a girl. Okay, so she will marry the producer of this movie. Yeah, the older one's the girl. And the younger one becomes a famous artist. The boy. Yes, because the whole thing about the... She's gorgeous. She, you know, she looks like her dad. That, like that whole piece. So she's having Fanny is having her triumphant return to the Follies. She's been working really hard, and on her opening night, Nick ends up skipping opening night to play poker because he is no good. And he tries to make this whole defense where he's like, "Look, like poker is my show. You have to go to your show. I have to go to my show." And it's like, the difference is, she is a success, and you are not. And he's like, well, I needed a win, and I was winning, so nothing could have taken me away from this table. It's like, your wife is Fanny Bryce. She has so much money. Just be a kept man. It's okay. You can have a purpose without having to commit crime. Or just, like, commit more, like... Actually, like, commit elaborate crimes. Don't be like, it's important for me to lose at poker. Like, at least have some ambition in your skeeviness. He is so lazy and sometimes in his skeeviness. It's like, you, it, it just losing at poker is dumb. Commit more wire fraud. And it's just, and I know this is a 2023 lens, but as a relatively successful woman... I'm so tired of the, your wife can't be more successful than you think. Like, yes, that's my 2023 lens, but it is exhausting. (laughs) I mean, I think we're supposed to find it obnoxious in 1968 as well. Yeah. Especially when your wife is Fanny Bryce. Yeah. So she's mad at him. Things are not going well. Uh, This is also then going to be kind of the window where she tries to find work for him. Where some of his, like the CD but legitimate buddies are opening a new gambling hall and they come over and they're like, Hey, we want you to run it. And you'll also be a part owner, but you don't have to pay any shares. And it's because Fanny is secretly bankrolling his share. Just let her do it. And he's like, no, I have to do everything myself. And it's like, well, you suck at doing things yourself. We've always like, you keep losing all your money, but somebody had also offered him a actual criminal job at that point right mr peterson at the racetrack so we see him making a phone call and that's kind of the end of that point and segment the next time that plot line comes up he has done the crime and is wanted yep but you know who is not wanted is eleanor of aquitaine and henry ii by each other (laughs) but in our point number four they do sit around the fire and talk about When they did want each other. This is the best scene of the movie. It's so good. I should have killed you years ago. You put me here. You made me do mad things. You bled me. Shoulder it yourself. Don't put it on my back. 
Pick it up and carry it. I can. My losses are my work. What losses? I'm the one with nothing. Lost your life's work, have you? Provinces are nothing. Land is dirt. I could take defeats like yours and laugh. I've done it. If you're broken, it's because you're brittle. This is what Will was talking about when it's like 20 minutes of them just in a room acting at each other. But also before this, Henry has started working on the scheme where he's like, what if none of these kids was my heir? Because they all suck and want to kill me. And so he starts like rewriting the history of his own life. He's like, the historians are going to write this and my life is going to be epic. They're going to be like, ah, Henry II, like great king. He married out of love, a woman out of legend, but she bore him no sons. So he had to marry somebody else. And Eleanor's reaction to that is, the one thing you have too many of is sons. Right, your problem is you have too many boys and you can't pick between them. Because she also, not only is she talking about their sons that are legitimate, but all of his bastard sons as well. Like, right. she's just like, you have too many sons, dude. He could always legitimize one of them and make them his heir, but that's not the issue. The issue is he wants to keep banging Alice. Yeah. Right. And apparently all it will take is a quick jaunt to Rome, where he believes the Pope will immediately grant his annulment. I mean, which was fairly common for kings in the Middle Ages. That's part of why Henry VIII was so pissed. He was like, everyone gets their annulment. Yeah, but I think uh, similar to Henry VIII's situation, the woman is more powerful than frequently considered in this era. Yeah. Right, that's the issue. Yeah, I, I wouldn't want, if I was the Pope, I would not really want to cross Eleanor Bactane. Just like he really didn't want to cross Catherine Erica. I mean, the concern, not even Catherine specifically, so much as like, these Spanish kings who controlled all the land around where the Pope lived. Yeah. Yeah, you don't want to piss off Spain, but they reminisce. You also, in the intermediary, have had all of the sons and Philip in a room with the tapestries and everybody's discovering each other, trying to backstab each other through Philip. Incredibly funny, as one by one, they come out, they're like, do you know that I'm here and I hear what you're saying about me? And this is when Jeff also says, and no one thinks of Jeff. (laughs) So I know that in the movie, Richard and Philip are portrayed as like, ex-lovers slash, you know, scheming. I was reading about Jeffrey. I forgot about this. Uh, Apparently, according to one source, Philip was so upset about the death of Jeffrey that he tried to jump into the coffin. So something says there might have been a bit more in that relationship than the movie portrayed. Interesting. Whoa. Because apparently he spent all of his time in France and was besties with Philip. Interesting. Here, Philip just wants to be chancellor, but, like, also king, but he is just going to be chancellor. Jeffrey, you mean? Jeffrey, yes. Sorry, I said Philip. Philip is king. But, yeah, the scene of Eleanor and Henry in the room, it just rocks. I mean, the moment where Henry says what he wants is a new wife, it just feels devastating for both of them. Like, she is like, okay, that's that, like, this is maybe the end for me. But also, you feel him feeling so small, admitting that to her. 
And that's when she also admits that what she wanted was him. It's so cool. It's so good. I mean, yes, I'm sure that she thinks that, but uh, encouraging multiple rebellions of her sons against their father is not a great way to keep a marriage strong. Correct. But I also think that's that's part of the brilliance of it, though, because you can also sit in there and analyze whether she's saying that because she's trying to manipulate him or whether that's what she was actually feeling. And I think there, I think you could have a read for both. And it's brilliant. You're saying that she might call him my man. Sure. So we come to the end of Funny Girl and Nick has committed crimes. Unlike in real life, he confessed his guilt. And unlike in real life, he did not run from the law. He goes to jail for said crimes. Before going to jail, he tells Fanny that he thinks that she should divorce him. This is the first correct thing Nikki has said in the movie. And she says, no, basically says, no, we'll talk about it when you get out in 18 months. So another cool kind of framing of this movie is that the whole, that the opening scene is her entering and sitting in the theater the day that Nick is being released from prison so we cut back to that she's been it's the framing device sitting in the theater reminiscing and we get to the end of her show that night at this point you know the new amsterdam theater is the zigfield follies featuring with her name on top like she is the star billing of the follies and she comes after the show you know people are in her dressing room she hasn't heard from him yet they leave the door opens again, and here is Mr. Arnstein. And he's like, hey, I came back for you. And she's like, I don't think about you. She asks him if he's seen the baby. She talks about how gorgeous the baby is. And you get that they are going to actually separate, which, again, is the first correct thing we've seen them do in this relationship. And then we cut to Barbara on a black stage singing my man wearing a black dress that blends in so it's basically just like her head and her arms it's so cool and it's so good i mean it's almost the the exact same ending as uh, a star is born (laughs) yeah yes i think it's better this time i also think it was better this time it's so good it's such an iconic song it is a fanny bryce song not a song that was written for funny girl and it's yeah it's just it's so good (laughs) and she's finally free of nick which is all i've wanted the whole time right and now she can move on to her third marriage in funny lady the sequel of 1975 i wonder if funny lady establishes that she was married before nikki i assume they can't like the continuity is too weird if you do that yeah probably the first one never counts that's just practice you take a mulligan gonna tell your spouses you said that i mean my wife listens to the show so she'll hear it yeah nick bought me a sweatshirt that says current husband on it (laughs) (laughs) oh man well speaking of marriages on the rocks so henry's locked all of his sons in the basement and alice keeps being like okay you will have to keep them there forever if you want this to work because if you and i get married and have a kid like anthony hopkins is gonna eat that baby why did you give me that mental image have a look at the nice Chianti. And then she basically says, go kill your own children. 
And he's like, he's like, fine, I guess. We're not even married yet, and you're telling me to do stuff I don't want to do? But Eleanor also goes down to... To give them all knives. It's 1183. Give them all knives. Because by her count, Henry will come, or I guess maybe this is Richard's count. Henry will come down with one knife. There are three of them. And three outnumbers one. That's right. It's good math. Henry does not, in fact, come down alone. He comes down. Eleanor tells them to escape, though. She doesn't give them the knives to kill Henry. It's to, like, fight their way out if they need. Yes. But Alice comes down with him. And then John lunges on his father, tries to kill him. Doesn't work out It's like a bunch of business. Nobody dies. Nobody dies. The boys all escape. And Henry and Eleanor decide to go back to... They go back to status quo. Right, they're gonna they're gonna do this again at Easter. We're in the cellar, and you're going back to prison, and my life is wasted, and we've lost each other. And you're smiling. It's the way I register despair. There's everything in life but hope. We're both alive. And for all I know, that's what hope is. They've really lost each other, but then he walks her back to her barge. And she says, well, are you going to let me out at Easter? (laughs) And... And then they all have a good chuckle. Nothing is settled. We still have some wars to go on here and some rebellion. But... They all kind of go back to their status quo after the weirdest Christmas ever. But yeah, Mark, that chuckle, like, the ending shots of this movie are incredible. Of just, like, Peter O'Toole standing on the shore, waving his arms and bellowing laughter as Eleanor, like, just goes back away on the boat. And it just keeps cutting back and forth between the two of them. It's incredible. It's the whole movie right there. They're so great. They're both such garbage people. I love them. Great movie. All right, Catherine, do you find the romances of Funny Girl and the Lion in Winter believable? Absolutely. Mm. Funny Girl, no. Lion in Winter, I mean, sure. I've certainly been around married people that hate each other that much. <laughs> um, yeah, I agree. And part of my thing with Funny Girl is what I said at the top, which is just like, weirdly, it feels like even though Fanny is the only character with agency, she also doesn't have enough agency. Everything just kind of happens to her. Which, like, is not consistent with Fanny Bryce, this, like, incredibly funny, like, striving businesswoman. Because she, like, gives all of her agency to Nick. Yeah, it's so frustrating. But she barely does that. It's just that she doesn't do anything. It's such a strange movie that way. Uh, We gotta keep things moving, because we're up against our time. Catherine, zero out of ten. Believability. Where do you put Funny Girl? Like a two. Lion in Winter, where are you going? Like a six. Okay, Mark, funny girl. Um, three. Lion in winter. I'm gonna go five, mostly because of the amount of people within the same family sleeping with each other. Truly crazy. Yeah, uh, I think I'm a five on lion in winter as well. Uh, funny girl. I'm gonna go four because, like, look, sometimes people are stupid. It's more unbelievable than believable, but sometimes people are dumb. Okay. Uh, do we think either couple will stay together? Uh, well, neither couple ends up together. Well, you know, Henry and Eleanor are still married. <laughs> Until his death. They w- Okay, right? in that way, they'll stay together. Those crazy kids make it. 
Helps when you lock your wife in a tower. Hey, Anna Cleves didn't mind. All right, uh, Catherine, if you had to pick one person from either movie to date, whom would you choose? It's a horrifying question that I had not thought about. <laughs> um, you could pick Richard. <laughs> I think maybe John Philip. Philip. Philip II of France. They, yeah. I mean, Timothy Dalton is pretty. I like who's the. Le- I'm trying to figure out the, the one who maintained a sexual the- relationship with Richard for years just so he could no. then tell his father. No, no, true, true. I'm going with like the nice choreographer man from Funny. That's Girl. what I yeah, was, I was like, say. Or like the blonde, the blonde folly girlfriend would also be a choice there. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Funny girl obviously already is. Should the Lion in Winter be adapted into a stage musical? Yes. I gotta say, I would love to see it. I don't know who would write. Give it. them songs, all madrigals. I, my answer would hard depend on who writes the music, because I don't Bring need back to see, Glenn Close. I don't need to see, like, the Mark Shaman version of this. No. But, like, Anais well, we Mitchell be Andrew- would be interesting. Okay, look, Mark, I, know, I hear where you're going. I would watch Andrew Lloyd Webber's The Lion in Winter. Well, we'll never get it, because he's stopping writing because of cancel culture, Will. Bad Cinderella uh, you know is what? bad. I wish I had thought of that before I started cancel culture. <laughs> I am the typhoid Mary of the woke mind virus. <laughs> oh maybe God. don't change. Maybe don't change the name of your show between the West End and Broadway to Bad Cinderella because it is okay. bad, and then be mad about it. That is extremely funny, though. That the show premiered in London as Cinderella got terrible reviews, and when they moved it to New York, anyway, they just called it Bad Cinderella and tried to own it. It was bad. <laughs> All right. I think that's it for The Lion and Winter and Funny Girl. We're on a time crunch. Uh, next week, we'll be doing a movie. Oh, oh, oh. Next week, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Ah, yes. Next week, we'll be doing Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Catherine, you have any thoughts on Mr. and Mrs. Smith? It uh, broke up a marriage. Much like Alice in The Lion and Winter. <laughs> Don't forget about Rosalind, the like. I was going to say, that was Rosalind for referred sure. to a lot. Oh, that's true. And apparently got, like, lopped in a labyrinth or something in real life. And was apparently... Oh, really? Yeah, something like that. Oh, I gotta look up Rosalind. The main thing I remember from this movie is that Rosalind was apparently super hot and really pretty when eating. Not everyone could say that. All right, until next week, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Last question, Catherine. What is the best piece of dating advice you got from either Funny Girl or The Lion in Winter? Um, don't sleep with people who might also be sleeping with your parents. So wait, what's the best advice you got from The Lion in Winter? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, From the other one, if somebody tells you they're they're a gambler as a profession, run. Or at least find out if they're good first. Yeah. Maybe if if they're on the World Series of Poker, then maybe that's fine. Yeah. But otherwise, run away. Gotta have sponsorship deals. My advice from The Lion in Winter is never grant a divorce because you never know when you're going to get back together. Because <laughs> that works out so well between the two of them. And then my advice from Funny Girl is when things aren't working out well, get a divorce. <laughs> <laughs>
my advice from the lion in winter is if your boyfriend keeps saying he's going to have you marry one of his kids, you should break up with him. He's a bad boyfriend. <laughs> and uh, my advice from funny girl is like, he should call you. If he's not calling you, go move on. He's just not that into Find a nice you. Baltimore boy. He's just not that into you. Catherine, we don't even have time to get into that. <laughs> Send Baltimore. Right. Until next time, I'm a ginger. And I'm gay. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Bye. At least I didn't fake it, hot, sir. Guess I didn't make it. Get ready for me, love, cause I'm a comer. I simply gotta march my heart.